Um, hey, uh, we are working through the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible and you got a paper Bible, you want to get to Hebrews 7. If you've got it on your phone or an iPad, Hebrews 7 is where we're going to be. And um, last week, if you were here, we talked about this uh, peculiar figure um, in Scripture, a guy named Melchizedek. And actually, all of Hebrews 7 is talking about this Melchizedek, this King Melchizedek, he, he only appears in all scripture in three spots. He appears in uh, Psalm 110, he appears in Genesis 14, and he appears here, right? Um, only there's one story about him and two other times they're just talking about him. And he's this really um, mysterious, if you remember last week, if you were here, uh, we talked about, he's this mysterious guy because he is a king, he's a priest of the Lord Most High, okay? He's a priest of our God, and yet he's not a Jew. He, he comes outside of the line of the Jewish people. He comes outside of the line of the Jewish line that's to be priest. He's a Gentile, and we don't know where he comes from. We don't know how he became a priest of God. All we know is there's this guy, and he comes from this city. It says that he's the king of Salem, right? And there's a lot of extra meanings going on. Salem means peace. And so the writer of Hebrews leans in and says, oh, he's the king of peace. And, and Melchizedek, Melchi, means um, king, and Zedek means righteous. And so he's the king of righteousness. But this town, Salem, you, you probably know it, um, <clears throat> it's the town of Jerusalem. So, so we have this like really mysterious figure show up, and uh, this whole exchange happens between Abraham and this King Melchizedek. Now, the rest of Hebrews 7 is going to talk about a lot of things that are really important um, and really significant, but it's all founded upon this one act. Okay, The writer of Hebrews is saying that Melchizedek is superior Okay, if you are here last week, Melchizedek is superior. Jesus comes in the line of Melchizedek as a priest, so it makes him superior to the Jewish priest, to the Levitical priest, all that kind of stuff. But the reason he says he's superior is because of one act, and it's an, it's an unexpected act. It's, it's an odd act. It's an unprecedented act. And so I, I want to look at it today a, a little bit more in depth. So if you, if you have your Bibles, Hebrews 7, verse 1 says this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, right? Priest of the most high God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings. Okay, now let's pause, get ourselves a little bit more context what's going on in Genesis 14. You can turn if you wanted to at some point, you go read Genesis 14, this whole story is right there. It's a very short story, it's a very contained story, right? Abraham is not from this area. Okay, I don't know how much you know about the story of Abraham. Abraham is not from what we call the land of Canaan, okay? um, where Israel ended up being, where they settled. Right? He's not from that era. He's from a place east, hundreds of miles east. Okay? And at some point in time, God comes to him, God speaks to him, and he calls him from the Ur of the Chaldeans, okay? and he calls him over to this land of Canaan. He's a foreigner. He, he's not from there. He doesn't possess any land. In fact, um, there are some... Uh, rabbi, some historical writings that actually think that, that what actually probably happened was that um, God first called Abraham's dad. Because actually, if you read in the biblical story, it tells us that Abraham's father began to travel west. He began to travel to the land of Canaan, and then they come to this city 
And there, Abraham's brother died, and the city has the same name as his brother, and Abraham's father went no further from that point. And then Abraham went on. And so uh, one of the theories, one of the stories rabbis would tell is that, um, he came, that God had actually called Abraham's father to be the father of many nations, all this kind of stuff, and he brought him, and, and they came to the spot, and his son died, and the father, in his grief, couldn't go any further, and he memorialized the, the, the city after his his son, and he stayed there, and it was God who called him. So he, so he calls him, calls Abraham to the land of Canaan, and it says that um, after the slaughter, did you see that? That is a, that is a um, very graphic word. Uh, I think for our ears, it's probably an appropriate word. Uh, after the slaughter, it, you see, um, Abraham in Genesis, it tells us that he's not from that area, he's not from this land, and there are these kings. And, and when you think of kings, don't think of like medieval palaces, right? Um, think more like um, uh, Nordic tribal leaders, right? There, there are, these, there are these, these people who are politically and religiously the head of what is probably, that we would call it a city-state, right? But realistically, it's like a couple hundred people, okay? So it's, it's, it's not even really, like it's like a village, right? And there would be this person who was, um, the Bible would call them a king. They were kind of the, the leader of it, and, and Abraham's the new kid on the block. Abraham's the new kid in the area. And Abraham goes to war with five of these kings, okay? Five of them, five cities descend upon Abraham, and he goes to war with them. And he wins. He wins. A, a lot of times, I think when we envision Abraham, right, we, we think of this, like, um, poor homeless man wandering around the wilderness, Okay? Here's the thing. Biblically, there's nothing that gives us any indication of that. In fact, it's the exact opposite. Abraham, by this point in his life, Abraham is wealthy. Abraham is powerful. He has flocks and flocks. You remember when Abraham and his nephew Lot are going to separate, right? It, it says, you know why they're going to separate? Because their flocks had become too big. Whole valleys couldn't contain their flocks together. So they split up, and one goes one direction, and one goes the other direction, because they have so much stuff. I mean, this parade that Abraham would bring around through the land of Canaan was a parade of people, hundreds and hundreds of people. And he goes to war with these five kings. And again, don't think like 20th century war, right? This was probably each city maybe sent out a couple dozen soldiers, and they're not, they're not even really, like, they're not like professional military soldiers, right? They're like guys who just the day before were out there uh, with a hoe taking care of the field. And now they're taking a little blade with them out into a field to go fight with someone else, right? And so these, these battles of these five kings, you know, there's probably a couple dozen people out fighting. And Abraham whoops them. I mean, Genesis is not... Not unclear. It's not kind of like, ah, right? He destroys these five kings, which means Abraham, who's already wealthy, already powerful to take on five kings, has now just inherited the wealth of five city-states, okay? So I want you, this is important context to know, because then, right, did you see what it says? It says, returning from the slaughter of the kings is where he met Melchizedek. And it says this, that Melchizedek blessed him, verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth of all the spoils. Now, you might not initially go, oh, okay. But I want to ask you this. 
Why? Why would, why would Abraham, okay, he is just like he is the biggest, baddest man on the block, right? He just whooped himself, a wandering um, uh, cattle herder, just whooped five city-states, five kings, and he comes on to this one guy, this, this, this king, Melchizedek. He hadn't met the guy. It says he's the king of Salem. He's the king of one city. Why is it in that moment that, that Abraham takes a tenth of everything he has, everything that he earned in the war, and he gives it to him? Now, you might, you might go, well, Sean, you know, in a lot of cultures, um, a, a king, if there is a more superior king in their region, kind of like mobs do, Right? If there's like a, a mob boss of the region and he says, I'll let you live, but you got to give me a tax every single year, right? I'll let you have your little grocery store on the corner, but you got to give me 15% of all the sales that come in for protection, right? And, and you might think like, oh, well, maybe Abraham sees this king, um, uh, this king and he says, well, I'm going to give him something so he doesn't destroy me. Why would Abraham do that? He just destroyed five cities. He just destroyed five kings, Right? He's not intimidated by Melchizedek. Why would he? Why would he now, now, maybe you've been around church for a long time, and you go, Sean, <laughs> don't you read the Bible? There's a thing called the tithe. I don't know if you know this, but a tithe literally means a tenth. The reason he gave a tenth is because he gave a tithe. Don't you know this? And I would say, don't you know this? The tithe wasn't instituted for hundreds of years later. There is zero precedent in this point in the Bible. Zero. It's not like, it's not like every single time they met someone, they're like, oh, well, time to give 10% to them, right? Hundreds of years later, God, yes, God institutes this thing called the tithe. It's, it's a um, magnificent, multi-layered cultural thing. It's, it's awesome, okay? Here's, here's basically how it works, okay? Every time you would earn something, you would then take a tenth of it, and you would give it to the religious leaders of the community. Here's why, okay? The religious leaders of the community, the, the, the priests, were Levites. Um, the Levites, if you look at a map of Israel, you will never find the area of the Levites. You'll find Benjamin and Judah, and you'll find all the other tribes, but you'll never find a region of the Levites because the Levites didn't have a region. The Levites' responsibility was to be the religious um, caretakers of the community. They would take care of the temple. They would take care of the religious practice of the community. And so the way they were provided for is that everybody in the community would give one-tenth of everything that they earn. And what would happen, right? Like if you're a grain farmer, right, and you harvest uh, 100 bushels of grain, right? I don't actually know what a bushel is. I don't know if it's big or a lot or small or... Um, but if you, uh, 100 bushels, right, for easy math, 100 bushels of grain, and you would then take 10 bushels to the priest, and you would say, here, here's my offering. And here's part of what it would do. Here's part of what a tithe would do. It would remind you that you have ownership and responsibility in the spiritual vitality of the community you're a part of. That you are in some way responsible for sustaining, because here's what happens. Here's what happens. You know what happens if the priests don't eat? It's never been a problem for me. But some people will tell you, you know what happens if priests don't eat? They die. 
They have to get other jobs. They have to leave, and, and there's just no priests. And so, so um, it's this beautiful way that God allows there to be a set group of people that are serving the community in this specific way, but everybody in the community is a part of the religious practice. And here's, here's another thing that was super cool is um, if you gave meat, right? Like let's say you're, you're a sheep herder, and you give, uh, you know, that year you have 100 lambs born, and so you're going to come and bring 10 uh, lambs right, to, to offer as your tithe. And, and um, in today's world, it, there's, there's a lot of um, bloodiness, there's a lot of um, rawness to the experience, but they would come and they would offer these lambs. And then some of them, in some occasions, what they would do is the, the priests were also like part-time butchers, right? And so they would take these lambs and they'd cut them all up and, and then they would cook them. They would, they'd, they'd, they'd barbecue them. They would, sometimes they'd even just smoke them, right? They would just like because it was a way that they'd preserve them and they'd offer, some of the sacrifices it says to, to, to burn the whole thing up, to consume the whole thing, right? Sometimes, but, but most of the time what they would do is they would just cook the meat. They'd cook the meat and then they would take the meat, they would take a portion of the meat and they would hand it back to the person who gave the tithe. And they would say, I want you to go home with this meat that you gave to God and I want you to have a feast tonight. And every single time you bite into that smoked lamb chop, I want you to remember that God is good and he's the one who's provided all of this for you. There's this really beautiful practice built into their life to, to take ownership in the community, to, to, to remember in a very practical way that God was the one who provided everything for them. The problem is, is all that stuff comes hundreds of years later. Why, why did Abraham see this King Melchizedek, Right? In fact, it doesn't tell us that King Melchizedek even brought an army with him, right? You, you know what King Melchizedek brought with him? Dinner. He brought wine and bread. So he brought, for some reason, Abraham said, you know what? I'm gonna, here's, here's a peculiar thing about it, okay? Um, you ever got a paycheck and then been like on your way home and saw someone at Ross and been like, you know what? I'd like to give you a couple hundred bucks. Just met you. See some of the gas station? Be, hey, I just got my paycheck. Here's 70 bucks, right? It doesn't make any sense. And for some reason, here's why. Here's my theory. It doesn't say it. Here's my theory. Okay, you ready? Here's my theory. Abraham is wandering a land that he does not know at the call of a God who's spoken to him. But if you see the life of Abraham, he speaks to him very inconsistently. And he comes to a man who is a priest, and not just any kind of priest, not just a priest of this God or that land or these people, but a priest of the God who's spoken to him. And, and he looks at this, this King Melchizedek and he says, you, you, you know him? You know my God? You're a priest to my God? The God who sustained me? The God who's protected me? The God who in the face of five cities against five armies, against five kings, went before me in battle? You, you, I, I've got to find a way to say thank you. I think it's that simple. I think that all Abraham is doing is he's worshiping. He's finding a way to say thank you to his God. Now, here's the thing, okay? Abraham couldn't be like, hey, God, you want a lamb? Huh. I mean, he could. That would have been nuts, Okay? God, you want some grain? <laughs> Confetti cannon of grain. He couldn't. But he saw a priest 
He saw man doing the work of the Lord, and he wanted to find a way to say thank you to his God. So he said, Here, all I can do is give you some of what I have to say, to say thank you. There's this um, passage, Matthew 6. I'm going to read it to you just so you don't think I'm making it up or misreading it. Matthew 6. Okay, Matthew 6. Jesus is, um, it's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the longest recorded sermon that we have of Jesus. Um, a lot of times when we talk about like the ethics of Jesus, like this is where it comes from, even though um, the Sermon on the Mount is not about the ethics of Jesus, but um, that, that's a different thing. But a lot of times when we get those things, that's, that's where this comes from. And Jesus is talking, and I, I used to think, okay, I used to think that what this passage said is, is for where your heart is, there your treasure will be also, right? And I used to say, and I used to, and I've heard people say like, oh, all you have to do to see what's important to you is to look at your bank account, right? Because where your heart is, is where you spend your money. But, but look at Jesus. Here, let me read it to you. I'm just going to read you the words really quickly here. It says this. You're just going to have to trust me because you're not going to be able to read it from there. It's very small print. But it says this. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's so subtly and amazingly significantly different. Here's what Jesus says. You have the ability to control the affections of your heart. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. You want to care about something? You want to care about something? Spend money on it. Right? If you're of a certain age that you care about a retirement fund, you know what the stock market's doing. Right? Because you have money. There was a time, I can promise you, there is not a 16-year-old person alive who cares what's going on with your 401k. But you start putting money into a 401k, into an RI, a, a Roth IRA. See, I can't even, I don't even, you can tell how much I've invested. In a bunch of these letters over here, and numbers, and suddenly you care. When you're in a certain space in life, and you're looking to, to, to buy a car, or to buy a house, you suddenly know what's going on with the, the interest rate. Um, if you're in a certain place in life and you're looking at colleges, you can spout out all kinds of statistics about different colleges and about their success rate and their graduation rate and their average um, median income after graduation and the rate of employment and all these types of things. Because if you start to spend your resources on something, your heart suddenly cares about it. You have, he, it's astounding. You have the ability to decide what you care about simply by deciding on where you spend your time, your talents, and your treasures. A couple years ago, I had a friend, um, and he, he called me, and he's like, hey, man, I'm doing this Dynasty Fantasy Basketball League, which, if you don't know, is like the extreme of nerddom, okay? Like fantasy football, there's a lot of people who do fantasy football. Probably in this room, there's a lot of people who do fantasy football. Fantasy football has like become pretty mainstream. If you don't know about it, 
Um, you draft a bunch of players from a bunch of different teams. Sometimes, like I did, um, you literally sit in a room with people and you have a draft board and you have a timer and it becomes really intense. You have a commissioner and the commissioner is responsible for enforcing the rules at the draft and throughout. You collect, like people have to pay into it, right? And then you have all the structure about how people win money. And if you were in the league I was a part of, um, Matt Olofsson, I'm going to say this out loud so that he can see it and anybody can see it, you can give him a hard time. Matt Olofsson still holds the toilet bowl trophy because um, last time we did a league, he came in last, so he got a trophy that was a toilet. And um, we were laughing, we were talking about it after service, and we thought, hundreds of years, hundreds, maybe thousands of years from now, somebody is, uh, an archaeologist is going to be digging in Monmouth, Oregon, and they're going to find a trophy of a toilet. And just thinking about the stories they're going to come up with to explain why people commemorated toilets, right? But, but, um, Fantasy football, it's like, it's hard for me. It's, a, it's in a season that's just like an extra busy season. I just didn't have the time to invest in caring, right? And so when my friend called and he's like, hey, we're going to do a Dynasty Fantasy Basketball League. And here's why a Dynasty Fantasy is extra nerdy. Because in a Dynasty Fantasy, you keep the players, right? Like, like you have like contracts with them and you get to keep them for a certain number of years. And then the most nerdy thing we did this couple weeks ago, you get together and you have a draft, you have a rookie draft, and in Dynasty Basketball Fantasy, depending on the rules and stuff like that, you can draft high schoolers. There are grown men sitting around evaluating high schoolers to put on their screen and keep track of their stats, right? Here's the thing. I'm not a huge basketball fan, but before doing Dynasty Fantasy Basketball, um, my view on... Now, let me tell it this way. I know more about the Orlando Magic's bench rotation than I should. <laughs> you know why? Because I invested time and I invested money. And where my treasure is, my heart will be also. You want to care about something? Spend some time on it. Spend some money on it. And suddenly, a thing that was just an inanimate object or just a moment in time or just a hobby will become something that matters to you. So my question to you is, is it's pretty simple. What are you investing yourself into? What are you choosing to turn the affections of your heart to? Sometimes, sometimes we, we say this, we're like... Um, well, I, I really want to care. I really want, I really want this to be an important thing in my life. I really want Jesus. I really want the church. I really want my relationship with Jesus to be important to me. And the question is like, how much are you actually investing in your time, in your talent, and your treasure? Because where you put those things, suddenly your heart will begin to care about. There's a saying I heard from someone else, and he said this. He said, direction not intention, will determine your destination. Direction, not intention. It's, it's like this. A lot of us have the intention of caring about Jesus things, about caring about the church, about caring about our faith, about caring about lost people, about caring about the mission of the kingdom of God all throughout the world. But in the reality, our lives end up looking like the NFL. There was a couple years ago, the NFL made an announcement that they were going to give $250 million over 10 years to local communities as a way of giving back. Uh, that's a big check, right? Can we all get $250 million? Here's the problem. <laughs> in that same period, 
The NFL made almost $250 billion. You know how much $250 million is? You don't have to be real good at math to know this. It's 0.1% of their total revenue. Sometimes we, oh, I want to, I want to, and we fail to actually meaningfully invest. Here's the thing for Abraham. I think for Abraham, he, he saw a man in front of him who represented the God that was everything to him. And so when the moment came, his heart, his affections, his treasure, his hope was already placed there. And so when the opportunity came, he was overwhelmed with gratitude about the way God has showed up for him over and over and over again. And over and over again, we see Abraham investing his time and his treasure and his talents into the things of God. So a question for you is, what are you investing in? You have the ability to decide the things your heart cares about. What are you investing in? Now you might, you might, you might say, um, <laughs> here's the deal. Um, I understand how the economy of church works. I've seen enough televangelists. I've been burned enough times. Like, I understand how this whole thing works. I understand you get paid from this, and this is your job. And so there's a bit of a conflict of interest, isn't there, for you to stand up there and tell us about we should be investing? And I would say 100% there is. And if you've been around here for a long time, here's the truth you're going to know. I don't talk about money very often. Because I recognize this is an awkward conversation for all of us to have. It's an awkward thing for me. There's conflict, all those types of things. And so here's what I'd say to you. Here's the out, okay? If your only reason that you are not investing your treasure into the kingdom of God is because you're concerned about um, my heart, you're concerned about the financial management of the church, you're concerned about a conflict of interest, you're concerned about televangelists, you're concerned about manipulation, whatever that thing. Here, here's the deal. Um, uh, McKenna, McKenna Sproul's right here. McKenna, raise your hand. Everyone look at McKenna. You can't see if you're online, but McKenna's right here in the, in the middle here, okay? Go up to McKenna after service. If you're online, go to YWAM. You can search, uh, it's Youth Without a Mission. Uh, I'm sure it's ywam.org. Sorry, what you, uh, that was, I ruined my joke. I ruined my joke. Youth with a Mission, Seth, Seth Halligan, who used to do mission stuff, um, always says that it stood for Youth Without Any Money. That, that was the joke. Um, YWAM, Youth with a Mission, you can go to their website and search Sproul. I'm sure you can go there, S-P-R-O-U-L-E, okay? You can search McKenna Sproul, and you can take your treasure and invest. And here's what's going to happen. As soon as you start giving money to McKenna, you're going to care about what McKenna's doing. In first service today, we had the Helts. The Helts, um, they're, they're a family, been doing missions work for like a decade in Cambodia. You can find them online, you can find them on Facebook, you can look up the Helts, H-E-L-T. And you can begin to invest in them. And you know what's going to happen as soon as you begin to spend money on the health and you invest into what they're doing? You're going to care about what's going on in the church in Cambodia. The Kings, they were here during first service. Matt and Jan King, you can look them up. You can find them on Facebook and you can begin to give to them. And if you have any conflict thinking that, that the reason that we talk about money and the reason that it matters it has anything to do with us enriching ourselves, then look up Matt and Jan King and begin to give to them. And you're suddenly going to care about this little school in Kenya and how it's serving missionaries all throughout Africa. Or Joe and Carol Hoover, first service, they sat right here in the second row. You know, Joe and Carol Hoover, all of their finances come through fundraising. All the work they do to translate for 
for um, nations, for languages all over the world. All the work that they've done in Guinea, West Africa is because people have been generous and open-handed. They've invested their treasure. And I can promise you that if you started giving to Joe and Carol Hoover, that you'd suddenly know where Guinea, West Africa was. And you'd care about what was going on in the church in Guinea, West Africa. You have a... So people come to me and they're like, I just... I, I, I want church to matter. I want my relationship with Jesus to matter. I, I, I feel apathetic and I feel tired and I feel indifferent. And I would say, Jesus says, the solution to that is to begin to invest your time, your talents, and your treasure. Because where you put your treasure, your heart will be. So the only last question to ask you is, do you have anything to be grateful for? Abraham met a priest and overwhelmed with gratitude, generously, joyfully gave. Do you have anything to be grateful for? Anything that might stir your heart in a way that you'd want to live open-handed with the time and talent that you have?